Welcome to Movie Maniacs, discussing the greatest movies of all time and all the new films in theaters and streaming that you need to know about. Like us, rate us, share us. My name is Chuck Curry, alongside my co-host Kenny B. This is Movie Maniacs, our weekly podcast radio spot uh, that is heard on WoWo, W-O-W-O, out of Fort Wayne, Indiana, every every Saturday night at midnight. Uh, On this program, we talk about film, talk about uh, the wonderful world of movies, the situation uh, that the the industry has currently found itself in with two strikes, writers and actors. We talk about streaming, we talk about... uh, uh, anything related to the world of film and also a little bit of uh, pop culture on this week's program uh at the tail end we're going to do our top 10 list as we always do and since oppenheimer has become a juggernaut at the box office we figured why not do 10 of our favorite films that deal with a person in real life a real life person that featured in a motion picture uh without further ado before we get into the nut and bolts of what we want to talk about this weekend uh how are you doing? I'm doing well, but I thought we were doing real-life pictures because of the Barbie movie, since, of course, my name is Ken, and my sister's name was, or is, Barbie. And we were Barbie and Ken before Mattel stole those names. Interesting. Uh, let me ask you a question. When you were a kid, I'm not saying you played with Barbies. Did you ever play? With, I remember playing with G.I. Joes. I remember having because i used to watch a six million dollar man and then gi joe came out with a, a line bionic joe a bionic gi joe uh and i i did play with gi joes not bobbies but uh in full disclosure i i, I did have a gi joe collection when i was a kid i had a gi joe collection and also those little green soldiers that had the little bases on them that you got a bag of them like for a dollar a thousand soldiers they they'd advertise them on uh the back of uh, comic books and things like that. So I used to play with the little soldiers as well. But of course, most of my play when I was younger was very violent, and it was either war or cops and robbers. And uh, uh, we grew up all right. Yeah, I think so. You know, it's interesting. And before I get, because I I want to do what we watch this week, because I did say something that I of of interest that I want to talk about on the year. But let's just talk about this phenomenon, which is the 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 the. Bobby and Oppenheimer uh, juggernaut, which is something we have not seen in quite some time. It actually, between the success of Bobby and Oppenheimer at theaters uh, in July, July actually was the second highest grossing movie per dollar, not 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 uh, discounting inflation, uh, of all time. Second highest dollar amount uh of all time at the box office this july and post-covid that is quite an accomplishment i never thought that the the bobby movie even though i did see it and i liked it and and i do understand why it is hit a nerve i think uh greta gertrin the director who is now the only director to have a movie that's grossed over a billion dollars kudos to her that is a massive accomplishment uh and obviously in her career but when I first saw the trailer to Barbie about four or five months ago, my first reaction, Ken, was honestly like, why did they make this? It felt like 
the second coming of Hudson Hawk. I just didn't get it or understand what they were going for, but clearly they had a game plan. Uh, the, the, the movie uh, is a metaphor. It's a string, strong uh, f- feminine, uh, you know, powerful uh, message here, and I do understand why it's become such a, a, a big hit. I didn't see it coming. I don't think anybody saw this, the Oppenheimer would do such a business. Now, you got Bobby, number one, has done $1.1 billion worldwide at the box office. Oppenheimer, number two, has done $550 million in growing on a daily basis worldwide at the box office. That off a budget of $100 million, this Chris Nolan movie uh, starring Cillian Murphy is going to be extremely profitable. Uh, last week in the box office, you had... Uh, the new Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Mutant Mayhem animated movie, did $45 million in his first five days. That's a solid number. The Meg 2, The Trench, which didn't get great reviews, but those movies are pretty much critic-proof. $30 million opening here in the States. That's probably a little bit better than uh, anticipated $150 million opening worldwide. So that film appears to be in pretty good uh, shape uh, financially. Now, this weekend at the movies blue beetle opens which is a new dc superhero movie originally it was tracking around a 15 million dollar opening weekend which would have been disastrous it's popped up to 30 30 million plus the advanced reviews just got released much to my surprise and i'm very happy about this the reaction is really really good many calling it fun funny exciting uh the lead in the movie who was in the cobra kai series zulu uh, Malaria, uh, I believe that's his name, is getting great notices. Some say he's super appealing, a star-making performance. And George Lopez is getting really good notices for his uh, part in this movie. I think with all these good reviews, this movie might blow past tracking and do $35 million plus. That would be really good news for Warner Brothers and DC coming on the heels of the financial box office disappointment of The Flash. Now, speaking of The Flash, Ken, having said that, the movie, which failed at theaters, it only grossed $206 million worldwide, which is almost hard to believe, with a budget of around $300 million. A movie that I like a lot. I play it continuously in my ice cream parlor. People seem to dig it and love it. I paid $24.99 on pay-per-view to own it. And it appears a lot of people are following suit because evidently it's doing extremely well on pay-per-view. Now, the industry and the studios don't release those numbers. But I believe like 85, 90% goes back to the studio. So how much can they recoup uh, from from the flesh? I, I, I'd love to know the answer to that question. Yeah, and it's, uh, you know, the one thing that strikes me is that we had a, a movie, a character-driven movie, a, you know, a, a biography of sorts, um, and do very well. And will they get the message? And will we see some in the pipeline? That's the real question you've had a movie now that has really played well with the uh, more mature crowd and probably a lot of uh, baby boomers as well going to see uh, the barbie movie i'm not going to kid myself and it'll be interesting to see once the strike's over and everything be interesting to see whether there is any uh, follow-through with more movies of those types because we tend to get movies in clumps and uh, i noticed that even when i was doing my top 10 list so it'll be interesting to see whether we get some more character-driven, even uh, biography-type movies, or do we get back to a steady state of Marvel comics and uh, 
things like that. It'll, and I think that's in the what? end. Then in the end, it's going to be the thing that's going to define movies going forward. Yeah, I, I would say this the, this summer, very really one of the most interesting summers that I've seen in, in, in since I've been uh, looking at this industry for almost three decades. I would say that this is a uh, a, a, a clear message that the movie-going audience wants to see something beside, not ne- necessarily discounting the superhero movie, because and I'll speak about that in my second, in a second, my opinion of where superhero movies will go forward. But clearly, this is a summer that the male-driven action movie has been rejected with Fast and the Furious 10, Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny, to some extent, Mission Impossible here domestically, The Flash. Uh, I, I think there's a message saying we want to see something different and Barbie clearly hit a nerve it had a, a, a pent up audience that wanted to go back to theaters but they didn't want to see what was consistently playing which was the male action movie so they got Barbie and they drove ran the theaters to see it Oppenheimer uh, amazing box office this movie has done and that social media uh, you know Barbenheimer uh, effect. I've never seen anything like it. I mean, I remember uh, different marketing campaigns and why movies hit nerves in 75 when Jaws became a massive hit, really with the first forte into a major studio releasing a tentpole movie with a massive marketing campaign in the summer season. And then, you know, Batman in 89 was probably the most memorable marketing campaign I've ever seen. That changed movies uh, dramatically in terms of front-loading uh people on a mass marketing push to get people into the theaters in the opening weekend and from there on out it was sort of you open or you close uh but this summer has been a very strange almost like a a a a a cleansing uh i think that's a, a good word to use but here's a question i have ken you're a studio you want to send them you you i always say they want to they want to make money but the success of barbie to me I know the studio heads are probably saying, oh, how do we do sequels? How do we do numerous sequels? But here's the thing. The movie doesn't need a sequel. It really should be a one and a done. Uh, I sort of hope it's a one and a done and let it make a ton of money for the studio. But to get Margaret Robbie and and, and Ryan uh, Gosling back for a sequel, yeah, they'll open the checkbook and pay them. But I just don't see the point. My gut feeling is if they do a sequel, it won't have Margaret Robbie or Ryan Gosling in it. They'll spin it off into a, a different uh, variation, probably use a Ken and a Bobby, but it won't be those two actors. I know the greed factor will kick in, but I wish Warner Brothers held their, held, held, held their respect here and just said, you know what, this is a one and done, no sequels. Although I think Mattel wouldn't agree with that logic. Yeah, probably not. But yeah, I'm gonna as a studio head, I'm actually looking more at Oppenheimer, and I'm saying, boy, you know, when I look at social media, I see a lot of memes with uh, Cillian Murphy in his uh, role in Peaky Blinders, and it's like, hmm, I think I have somebody who actually resonates with a lot of people out there, including a lot of women out there. Yeah. And uh, you know what? Maybe what I'm looking forward to do is uh, do another. A good uh, vehicle for him. Maybe I even do a Peaky Blinders movie. Who knows? We'll we'll see how this all plays out. I mean, the bummer of all this, the success of this, is this strike needs to end 
because he already has studios kicking movies that were supposed to be released this year into next. He got Ghostbusters Afterlife sequel, which was supposed to come out in December, being kicked into next March of 2024. I believe Disney's The Marvel's been kicked into next year that was supposed to come out November. Uh, I think there's a handful of movies uh, that I don't recall off the top of my head that they have changed the release date into next year. Some was close to being finished and it can't finish. Uh, th- that's not a that's not a good thing. And I and, and I really wonder what the end game is with, with the studios. Do they really want this strike to end? What are they trying to eradicate? Is AI really that? important i just read an article actually i was uh, i go to almost news all news outlets but on the drudge report uh the, the 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 headline was that a lot of news outlets feel a lot of news outlets feel that ai will take over the newsroom and that they don't need reporters and they basically could just take ai to write uh the daily the daily news you have an opinion on that one um, i well yeah of course you could and uh, because you know it used to be we just ripped the thing off of the uh, teletype machine and we read what was on it and i i can see you know ai going out there uh, condensing the different news sources out there yeah i and, can see that too and, and max I, I mean, and I'm max sure headboom being of it. yeah and, you know max comes back as the uh, the talking head absolutely yeah i hope not i re- and honestly i say this as we tape I don't like the direction. I think uh, I'm fearful for, for for our culture going forward. If whoever wants this AI to take such control in uh, our daily matters, uh, let's go into what did we see this week? Do you see it before I get onto mine? Did you you see anything of interest you want to talk about? I, I actually watched. Uh, I'm 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 still watching uh, Suits, and I really do enjoy it. I gotta say, it's a, and a lot of people are discovering it for the first time on Netflix. Uh, because we didn't watch it when it was on originally. And I also watched a, uh, a, a series this week uh, called, um, I think it's called The Americans. It's, okay. It is a, uh, and a, I believe it might have been on uh, Amazon. I get the two mixed up. No, it was on A&E. I think it was on A&E. No, well, it was, I, didn't, I wouldn't have watched it on A&E. But it's, okay. a, it's about a, uh, an English, the, no, it was the English, sorry. It, it was the English. It's about an English woman who comes to the Wild West looking for her love, looking for revenge, a few other things. A, uh, a, oh, it's be, different show than yes, yes, okay. yes, befriended by an Indian, a Native American, and uh, very, very good, uh, good, good movie. A lot of blood, guts, and everything else, but also some really uh, some some good plot twists and the like in it. So I watched that, and then I got back to uh, into Suits, and I was really. Really impressed when one of the uh, lead lawyers in the show was broken up over the death of his cat. You know, I could relate to that. So, <laughs> relatable, Don, Donnie, relatable stuff. Huh? Yeah, Donnie the Wonder Cat's alive and well and sitting at my feet. Very good. Uh, I got a chance to see yesterday. I watched it with my daughter. She said, oh, let's watch this on Netflix because my daughter is a track runner for the local high school and she plays basketball. So she's always looking for documentaries on sports figures. So Netflix just came out uh, with a documentary based on the life of Johnny Manziel, who played for Texas A&M. He had a terrific college career, uh, and then he was drafted in the first round by the Cleveland Browns and became one of the great busts 
in NFL history. And the, the, the very interesting part about this documentary, which I do like and I recommend, it's not the greatest documentary I've ever seen, but what's fascinating about it is Johnny Manziel himself took part and was a big part of this documentary, giving basically play-by-play, blow-by-blow of his, uh, I dare I say it, his screwed-up life. Um, I, I found it interesting for t- two reasons, Ken. One, uh, I, it was amazing that they pointed out in this documentary that Johnny Menzel was drafted in the first round. Clearly, it, it documented uh, his, his, his lifestyle in, in, in college, which I'll get to in a second. But what was interesting the most about it is that he never looked at one iota of film. Not one. He didn't look at himself play. He didn't study film. He nothing zero. How could one the university uh, accept that? And how in the world could the Cleveland Browns not do their homework, knowing all the rumblings about this guy? I mean, the documentary uh, uh, basically states which. They admit to that Johnny Menzel had a fourth fourth string fourth string quarterback do a urine test, a drug test for him uh, the day before the draft. Uh, he didn't look at film. Uh, he was a massive partier. He was not disciplined. He enjoyed the game, but when the game ended and he, when they, when he went back to uh, his his room or all he wanted to do was 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 party he was massively self-destructive um i found that not that it's new territory of human behavior but i did find it interesting and i I was sort of saddened by the crash and burn of his professional career which he really did not want and in documentary clearly shows that once he became a, a pro athlete he he wanted out he just couldn't deal with the pressure couldn't deal with the stress what i did find Two things I just want to point out also about this documentary. The university uh, clearly, I don't want to use the word corrupt, but they were definitely advantageous in making money off him. When he won the Heisman Trophy, Ken, the university that year raised, I think, $145 million in donations. He was so uh, upset that he didn't get a dime of anything from the college that he sold his autograph uh, under the table and made, you know, thirty, forty thousand dollars a pop to do that. Uh, I want to, you know, he, he guess it, 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 he became corrupted and never recovered from it. So I think it's an interesting documentary. I know you're a sports fan. I think it's, I think it's well worth watching. I found it very interesting. Yeah. It's also unusual because usually players from A&M, when they go to the pros, they take a pay cut. Uh, I'm, I'm serious. Oh, my, my, I, my, my sister is a doctor at Texas yeah, A&M yeah. and for years uh, was involved in uh, the, phys- the the player physicals. And as she said, she didn't get to do the turn your head and cough part. She used to do the height yeah. and weight. And uh, she, the, the parking lot at the health center looked like a, a foreign car dealership. This is back in the days when they were really wild there. But, you know, anybody who thought Manziel was going to be uh, good in the pros just didn't watch him in college. It was another one of those typical Cleveland stupidities. But then again, yeah, he bought a dream because but, in the documentary, the agent, the agent, when 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 he was going through the first round, it was not drafted yet. I think it got to the 16th or 18th pick, and he texted the Cleveland Browns saying, "Take a chance, you won't be disappointed." And I guess they bought uh, his text hook line to singer, but clearly, no homework 
was done, and in, in, in retrospect, it was a horrendous, horrendous pick. But, it, which but is in, not in, in, in the Cleveland Browns, yeah, in, 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 in defense of the Cleveland Browns, of course they didn't yeah. do the Kyler Murray thing in Arizona. Which, when you found out that your quarterback doesn't watch film because he, he's too busy playing video games, we're going to give it's him unacceptable. an ex- we're going to give him an extension. That's you know, that, yeah, uh, crazy. But, uh, you know, um, Manziel's always going to go down as the second to Ryan Leaf. Among the great busts, but uh, you know, as our friends in Indiana will know, uh, it was a it was a coin flip who was going to be drafted number one that year between Peyton Manning and Ryan Leaf, and thankfully the Colts got it right. Yeah, interesting stuff. Also, I I, I just want to point out what I've been watching. By chance, I'm I'm changing because uh, I like to, I watch a lot of YouTube. Because I, I find older stuff very reflective. I talk about that on the program. How last month I was watching a lot of Andy Kaufman stuff and his appearances on David Letterman. I, I found that pretty fascinating. And so what popped up is Siskel and Ebert review show, and and it had the whole the, the entire show, the thirty minute show, first on sneak previews, which is aired on PBS from the uh, late nineteen seventies, and then when they went on the uh, syndicated show at the movies. To uh, I think the, the late the, the the late nineties, Cisco went up passing, and then it was Ebert and Roper. But what was interesting is I, I caught one program in its entirety, and Cisco and Ebert uh, sneak previews nineteen eighty two reviewed Poltergeist and Rocky three on the same program. And what was interesting about it is that Cisco completely trashed poltergeist which wound up becoming one of the biggest hits of all that, of that year and people love i love poltergeist i think it's a classic movie and they also gave uh well at that time it wasn't thumbs they didn't go to thumbs up and down till they were at the movies but when they were sneak previews it was a yes or no do we like it yes do we not like it no uh, two no's to rocky three which i found very surprising because they love rocky one and two they just felt that the, the the character of Rocky didn't grow in Rocky Three, but I love Rocky Three. Most people do. It was a huge hit that year, very mainstream uh, accessible. And I started watching other Cisco and Ebert uh, reviews, which you can be seen on YouTube in its entirety. I watched a review of Titanic, which they both loved. I brought me back in time and then i remember uh, one of the reviews on the 82 show with uh, poltergeist in rocky three they also reviewed et and ebert said that et is such a great movie that will become a timeless classic people in 50 years will be watching this movie and boy was he right on that but just to watch those two do their thing in a world that is very different than the world living now when those two people were two big parts of pop culture and their movie reviewing had a really interesting aspect to it. Uh, I really enjoy watching this stuff. So I don't know if you were a Cisco and Ebert, but, but I, I certainly were. I, I indeed, and of course, I you know living in South Bend for a while, you you got the Chicago newspapers, and you get get uh, exposed to the writers for the Chicago papers. So yeah, I remember them very well. Very good. Now, before we get into our top ten list uh, that we always conclude the program, which will be our top. 10 movies that we thoroughly enjoy based on real life people i just want to do some this week in uh movie or television history we'll start with television ken august 13 1981 cbs airs the last episode of the long running the waltons i always remember when that show closed that would be good night good night john boy uh very good cast in that show ran a long time i remember when i was a kid 
Sunday night would be the Waltons on CBS and on NBC, the wonderful world of Disney. I also think, uh, I think Kojak aired on Sunday nights way back in the day. But you, your thoughts on the Waltons as a TV show? It, it, was, it was a great cultural phenomenon. It was. A, it was. And it was, you know, as I tell you, I, I actually every once in a while mentioned the movie it all came from. The Homecoming with Patrice Neal, and uh, uh-huh. it was a very, it was a very good series. Very, uh, it was one of those series that was a clean drama, and uh, it, it was. But the, but it also had edge, and also uh, uh, when when it also was um, emotionally powerful and sometimes depressing. The same as Little House on the Prairie back in the day with Michael Landon. That show was a, a show similar to The Walton's terrific show that also dealt with a, some very serious subject matter on, on a very emotional level. Yeah, and it, and it actually proved that you could have a television series that was deeply emotional, was about people's real life without yes. uh, without gimmicks, and it was a very good series. I agree. I completely agree. This week in uh, movie history, August 11th, 1973, George Lucas uh, goes on the movie map with the release of American Graffiti, a very good movie with a cast of, of, of actors who would go on to do really big things. Ron Howard, Harrison Ford, Richard Dreyfuss, Suzanne Summers, C- Cindy Williams. Do you remember who the DJ was in the movie, Ken? Wolfman Jack. Yes, Wolfman Jack. I remember actually, I don't know what year I saw it in. It probably was a re-release, but I remember going to, with a buddy uh, I think it was the Mayfair Movie Theater in Brooklyn, New York, to see American Graffiti. It was an afternoon show. Not a lot of people were in the theater, but I just found the Wolfman Jack, the whole subplot, going to the radio station, uh, very memorable. And I, I loved me some Wolfman Jack back in the day. Yeah, and then, you know, as a former music DJ, I mean, uh, yeah, of course I remember that part of it. it was I, I remember seeing that movie in a drive-in right after it came out. Cool. Uh, with with a bunch week- of guys, unfortunately. Okay, understood. Now, this week in movie history, uh, very memorable for me, uh, The Abyss, August 8th, 1989, comes out. It was the summer of Batman, uh, Indiana Jones, and The Last Crusade, Ghostbusters 2. I'm a big fan of The Abyss. I remember seeing The Abyss like three or four times that month of August, and I liked it a lot. I thought Ed Harris and Mary Elizabeth Master Tonio uh, were terrific in that movie directed by James Cameron it was a, a grueling shoot the actors in this film specifically Harrison Mastroni don't even like talking about the underwater stuff but there's one scene in that movie a drowning scene and a resurrection scene that follows is one of the most powerful scenes and well done scenes in the history of genre movies then they came up with a director's cut which was released in, in, in limited theaters that ta- tacked on another 20 25 minutes to the ending because Cameron didn't have uh, a final cut. The studio did. And I'm in a power back in 89 and it made the movie even better. I remember taking a drive or a bus into New York City and I watched the extended cut in a movie theater in Manhattan and I was blown away by The Abyss. You remember that film? I do remember it and I can't say I ever saw it. Yeah, I, I, I like it a lot. Uh, you can't get it. You can't watch it. It's not on a streaming service. It's not on Blu-ray. Uh, which is bizarre. It's hard to hard to find. It's just I don't understand it. Uh, also, this week in movie history, August first. Uh, I forget the year. It's in the two thousands. Terminator th- or nineties. I mean, uh, Terminator three 
was released with Arnold Schwarzenegger, first Terminator film not to be directed by James Cameron. I think Jonathan Moscow directed it. I like it. Uh, I, I like this film. I think it works very well with the first two entries. Arnold's really good again. Uh, has a thought-provoking last 20 minutes. So I always recommend it and like uh, Terminator. I think it's a uh, pr- pretty good movie. Yeah, I think I gave up after the first one. Under, under, understood. Uh, a birthday of interest before we get on to our main topic. Interesting that Hulk Hogan, uh, born with the name Terry Bollea, uh, turned 70 years old, uh, August 11, 1953, um, was a world champion at WWF from 84 to 89. I think it's safe to argue without Hulk Hogan, would wrestling have hit the peak that it did in the 80s and the 90s? I don't think it would. It was a massive pop culture uh, iconic presence really was a real life superhero. I watched Hulk Hogan live at wrestling matches. I'd say at least twenty five times. I used to go to Madison Square Garden and the Meadowlands all the time. I was at the first WrestleMania uh, back in I think it was nineteen eighty five. I would argue that the po- the peak of wrestling started to was at the highest level in eighty seven WrestleMania three when Andre the Giant turned heel. Uh, and for Hulk Hogan, it's just an iconic match, uh, which you can watch on YouTube. Now, in terms of Hulk Hogan's movie career, never really materialized. He did a movie called No No Holes Barred with the character of, of, of Tiny Lister, Zeus, and they wound up wrestling. The movie was absolutely atrocious. I remember watching it in the theater going, my God, this movie's awful. Did a comedy called A Nanny, not so good. But as a wrestler and a pop culture celebrity, very few more likable and popular than uh, Hulk Hogan. You know, what's interesting, Ken, is that in this period of time, McMahon and wrestling, you know, they produced all these dolls and sold wrestling to kids, and it worked on a big level. But when you watch a lot of the behind the scenes and read a lot about wrestling, uh, it's very dark uh, behind the scenes stuff with all, all the people who partake. They're only human, I understand that. But uh, I, I think when you study the annals and you look at stuff on YouTube, about wrestling in the 80s and 90s. I think it's it's actually fascinating history. Yeah, and, you know, when you talk about the sale of the uh, action figures, the dolls, and of course you get the wrestling ring too. Uh, you know, my I lived in England between 1990 and 1993. My daughters were five and 10 when we moved there. And among the little uh, community of American kids that we had in the neighborhood, which was pretty big, they all used to like to go down to this one store downtown and buy the WWF at the time wrestling figures. So it was a it was a huge thing among boys and girls. You know, I'll tell you a quick story. When I was a kid, me and my brothers, we used to stay up and watch television. And one one night on a Saturday night, I'm laying on my couch. I'm changing the channels, and wrestling comes on Saturday at midnight. And it wasn't the WWF; it was another wrestling organization. And uh, I remember the rest of his memory popped in my head. Tex McKenzie, Mighty Igor. Uh, um, Ivan Putski. Ivan Putski. Ivan Putski. And I just sort of fell in love with that. Couldn't watch. And then like two months later, the syndicated station which aired it flipped. Um, it flipped its programming and started airing the WWF with McMahon. And then I got into those wrestlers which... Uh, oh, Captain Lou Albano and Freddie Blassie and 
I, I remember it with Bruno San Martino, and then I remember that I forget the guy's name, but hit Bruno San Martino with, with the with the lariat, and he had um, half silver dollars in there, and they cut San Martino's head o- head open, and, they, and I remember it was saying Bruno San Martino actually broke one match, broke his neck, but uh, I, I sort of then I used to watch wrestling uh, every Saturday at noon, and I, it was a big part of my childhood. So again, yeah, I was spending some time talking about Hulk Hogan, but. You know, he was a big part of pop culture in the history of the 80s and the 90s, turned 70 years old this week. Let's pop into now, Ken, our main topic of the program, which is 10 movies that we like, we recommend, we dig, uh, based on real life people. Uh, I'm going to let you start your 10 through 6. You know, one of the hardest things for an actor is when you're doing a, a, a movie with a real life character is trying to resemble and have the have the mannerisms of that character. My number 10 is To Hell and Back. It's the Audie Murphy story from 1955, co-starring Marshall Thompson, who would go on to be Doc Tari in the television series. But the guy who played Audie Murphy in that movie had him down perfectly. It was Audie Murphy, of course, playing himself. But uh, Audie Murphy, To Hell and Back, a great movie. Uh, I'm reading a a book, uh, not the one that he wrote, but a book written about him. Uh, And this was a guy who, uh, he really, he was fearless when it came to the the battlefield. Most decorated soldier in U.S. military history. Uh, Good good movie. Uh, Audie Murphy had a brief uh, acting career and died, I believe, in a plane crash uh, a few years after he started acting. Number nine... Number nine, you probably never heard of, uh, stars Robert Walker as Jerome Kern. The movie is called Till the Clouds Roll By. It's a 1946 documentary about the life of Jerome Kern. It starts with him reflecting on the opening night of Showboat, his uh, great uh, stage musical, which will soon reach 100 years old. Um, when it first the first night it opened, it ran over four hours. They thought it was going to reach a hundred years old on its first night. But great movie about the uh, career of Jerome Kern, who was one of our great American composers. Number eight, Tom Hulce as Wolfgang Amadeus uh, Mozart, yeah. F. Murray Abraham stealing the show yeah, as Antonio Salieri, winning Best Actor movie also won the Best Picture Oscar. It won a total of eight Oscars in 1984, and it was Amadeus. 19, or 2009 is my number seven. Taron Egerton plays Sir Elton John, and the movie is Rocket Man. Yeah, I like it a lot. Great, great uh, biopic about uh, Elton John. I, I did. I think it was a balanced approach, and... Uh, it was uh, well done, and it was a very entertaining movie. And of course, yeah, it features the music of Elton John, and it goes hand in hand with the movie of the year before, my number six. And that's why we go in these things go in cycles. Rami Malek, who channeled Freddie Mercury pretty darn well. Lucy Boynton as Mary Austin, the one true love in Freddie Mercury's life, even if it wasn't the normal romantic love we might think of. It was Bohemian Rhapsody. Yeah, it was. A movie about Queen, but it's really a movie about Freddie Mercury. And I think they nailed the scene from Live Aid about as far as well as you possibly could. Because I've watched the, the, the real film of that, of that Live Aid concert 
many times because it's the greatest 25 minutes in uh, music history ever, without a doubt. Uh, and uh, having lived in England at the time that Freddie Mercury passed away and remembering that day very well, you know, Bohemian Rhapsody didn't sugarcoat it. Okay, it didn't, it didn't get... I mean, the depravity of, Murph, of, of Freddie Mercury was even worse than what they would have shown in the movie, but they didn't sugarcoat his life, and that was good. A, a great, the greatest vocal talent of our day, and uh, very much a tragedy that his lifestyle had done him in, but I love Bohemian Rhapsody from 2018. Those are good picks. I, I think those movies, the biopics, really live and die by the lead performances of the actor actress playing the role and i i, I am a uh, definitely a big fan of uh bohemian rhapsody uh terrific performance and also rocket man another terrific performance and both very entertaining movies those movies are done right i was sort of surprised that uh last year when the whitney houston biopic came out that uh it, it didn't have the interest among the general populace that those two movies uh, it did, considering Whitney Houston was a massive star, and I, I thought the movie was not great, but it, but it was good enough to do a lot more box office than it actually did. Good picks, Ken. My number 10, I went with Rudy uh, from 92. Uh, two movies David Osbaugh did sports-related were Hoosiers and Rudy. I think he knocked it out of the park. I love the lead performance by Sean Astin, one of the most likable actors to ever grace the silver screen. I think he was born to play Rudy Rudiger, a really fascinating uh, story uh, based on what maybe some people would say much ado about nothing, but what 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 they may fail to realize is that Rudy Rudiger uh, had a, a massive, massive heart and a determination, and it was proof, point proof, that if you put effort into something, you have a dream for it and you strive for it, there's a possibility you can get it, and that last 15 minutes of that movie is awe-inspiring. I love that movie. Number nine, I went with the Into the Wild, the true story of Christopher McCandless, played by Emil Hirsch from 92, about a young man who had a promising future, $24,000 in the bank, and a family inheritance, gives it all away to go on a journey of self-discovery, uh, movie ends not so happy but I, I found this film fascinating it was nominated for best picture sean penn directed it i think it's one of the best films certainly of that year 92. my number eight i went with the movie pursuit of happiness uh the chris gardner story played by will smith about a single father who's really beyond down on his luck who focuses himself against all odds works extremely hard gets a job at a brokerage firm, winds up becoming a successful, successful stockbroker. This movie deals with the human the human endurance, warts and all. I think it's one of Will Smith's very best movies. That is my number eight. Number seven, I went with Mel Gibson's Hacksaw Ridge from 2016, the lead performance of Andrew Garfield playing the character of Desmond uh, uh, Drasa, I believe his name is a soldier who is a pacifist, gets enlisted, refuses to shoot a gun, but saves his entire infantry. It's a fascinating movie. My adrenaline pumped beyond belief in the last half hour. To me, this is a movie that should have won the Oscar for Best Picture in 2016. They're never going to do that with a Mel Gibson movie after all the brouhaha with his uh, personal life. But I love this movie, and it's a very inspiring movie with a great performance by Andrew Garfield. I think his best on film and my number six i went with the social network uh david finch's movie based on the life of mark zuckerberg the founder of facebook this movie is terrific from beginning to end 
Uh, I think it completely works. It's fascinating. It's a big part of our pop culture history. So that is my uh, number number six, Ken. Yeah, I was going to go with the movie about Tom from MySpace, but they didn't do one about Tom from MySpace. <laughs> I don't know no, why. They, they, I actually remember having MySpace. Actually, when I started first going on social media, I had MySpace. Boy, who would have thought, Ken? That's right. No more MySpace. Okay, I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm boring because I'm sticking with the biopics about, uh, uh-huh. about music because... Uh, you know, most biopics are either about soldiers or they're about music, and uh, this one is also about music. And I saying that I remember I, I left off the one that should have been my number one, but that's okay. Uh, Walk the Line from two thousand five. Joaquin Phoenix is Johnny Cash, but the one who and uh, G- Jennifer Goodwin as Vivian Cash, Reese Witherspoon as June Carter Cash, um, and again, it's hard playing a live character, especially one that we knew in our lifetime. I mean, you can go out there and play Queen Elizabeth I. Most of us didn't know Queen Elizabeth I, the first, so, you know, you can take some liberty. Most of us, especially us country music fans, of course, we knew Johnny, we knew Jude Carter, we knew, knew the Carter family. Reese Witherspoon so much nailed June Carter that she won an Oscar for it. So my number five is from 2005, and it is Walk the Line, which is... The Johnny Cash story, they didn't have it. I walked the line because there had been a 1980 or something like that movie by the same title, and so they wanted a different title, and that's why the I is missing from the title of the movie, Walk the Line. It's a very good movie, very good performances, and a very interesting story indeed. My number five, um, I went with the character of Eddie Agin, who was known as Popeye Doyle. Uh, the character Gene Hackman played in the terrific French Connection. Uh, William Freakin, the director of that film, who also directed The Exorcist, just passed away this week. He had a terrific run in the 1970s. Exorcist, great. French Connection, great. Gene Hackman's first Oscar for this movie. Just a gritty 1970s New York City police movie with a very interesting character uh, played by Gene Hackman. That's my number five. My number four, my hey, it's the last one of my country music ones. Uh, Tommy Lee Jones was in this one. He played Mooney Lynn. Sissy Spacek played Loretta Lynn. And as our listeners there in Indiana will know, the Lynn family would eventually move, from, or the, the, her family, Loretta's family, would eventually move from Butcher Holler and settle in Indiana, southern Indiana. This is where Crystal Gale went to high school. I actually was in the law firm with somebody who went to high school with her. Uh, but uh, Coal Miner's Daughter from 1980. Uh, great biopic, great story about uh, Loretta Lynn and Sissy Spacek. Did a very good performance in that. So that's my number four. You know, it's interesting. You bring back memories when you talk about something, especially that movie, because those are the type of movies that people had high interest in, uh, high, high interest back in that in that period of your box office successes they did uh, you know at the oscars they were major players big part of the annals of the film going experience and you see where we are now where movies like that don't even get made which is really a shame my number four was uh i'm gonna go with goodfellas henry hill played by ray lietta a fascinating journey uh, roots, uh, warts and all from a, a low-level mobster who, who gained power to his downfall. I think it's pretty evident Martin Scorsese basically is, is, is saying that, you know, this type of lifestyle uh, at the end 
is ill-advised. What a great performance. Really the defining performance in the career of uh, Ray Lietta. I think Goodfellas is a perfect film from beginning to end. Fascinating. Its repeatability is off the charts. One of the greatest, uh, if not as good as any mob movie ever made. Isn't it interesting because there's a published uh, interview that came out that Ray Lietta uh, gave after before his, his passing uh, earlier this year and he actually said that he had a meeting that he turned down with Tim Burton because Tim Burton was interested in him playing Bruce Wayne Batman back in 1989 he said it's a meeting that he regrets not going to uh he just looked at his career differently and thought playing Batman would be silly but you know he he realized that that would have been a great opportunity I don't think Lietta who's had a who had a great uh run playing a lot of supporting roles going going forward, but never, I don't think, achieved a massive success as a lead actor as he did playing Henry Hill in that great, iconic Goodfellas uh, back in 92. Yeah, the amazing thing about Goodfellas, uh, as I told you, I've been watching uh, Suits and uh, the the two lead characters like to banter about with movie references, and one of them was invited to dinner by the senior partner, and the other guy said, oh, well, that's good. He goes, yeah, well, Joe Pesci thought he was going to dinner, and he ended up getting whacked, so... Yeah, who, who knows? Yeah. <laughs> who knows? My number three. I mean, this one. I was watching a video earlier uh, this week, uh, and it involved. It was a Friars uh, event, and it involved Jimmy Cagney, who was a song and dance man, and Bob Hope, who I knew sang, but I never realized what a good dancer Bob Hope was. And he and Cagney were doing a little bit of a back and forth sort of a, a dance off. You know, anything you can do, I can do better. And Jimmy Cagney was dancing in that, that upright, stiff style that wasn't his, but that he had uh, adopted for this film. And that, of course, was 1942's Yankee Doodle Dandy, uh, where Cagney, of course, plays George M. Cohan, also starring Joan Leslie and Walter Houston. The film isn't historically accurate. They, they did a few things, like they cut out one of his wives and things like that. But this was World War II. It was meant to be an inspiring movie for the populace during the war. Great performance by Cohan. Uh, you know, we've all seen him do his uh, his rendition of Yankee Doodle Dandy and with that straight upright style of dancing. Uh, just a great film, and it was you know we we know uh, Cagney probably more from things like uh, you know I'm, come out you yellow belly rat or I'll shoot you through the door. But in any event, uh, Yankee Doodle Dandy, 1942. Uh, a movie I used to watch all the time uh, as a staple of uh, 4th of July when I was a kid, WPIX Channel 11, Yankee Doodle. I could not wait for that movie. People in my neighborhood, everybody would have it on the TV at the uh, same time. Actually, pre-VCR. So, yeah, a very special film indeed. My number three, I went with Moneyball. Brad Pitt as uh, Billy Bean, the guy who reinvented... Uh, the way baseball teams are run on a, 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 in that case on a cheaper budget analytics rule a day which now they're basically rule a day in full force I think this is the best performance by Brad Pitt it's my favorite Brad Pitt movie I think it has a ton of repeatability it's a very interesting film it's well done Jonah Hill gives a really good performance in the supporting role but the character of Billy Bean played by Brad Pitt is a really interesting person to watch his film is done the way it should be uh, involving uh, layered very good film. Number three, Moneyball, with the character Billy Bean, played by Brad Pitt. 
My number two, if I were to ask you who is the best movie, who are the top three movie directors today, my answer would be Steven Allen Spielberg. Uh, because I, would, I still would agree. Yeah, yeah he's all three. You, know, you don't even put a number two in it. And this may have been the best Spielberg ever. I, I really think so. Uh, before this movie, we would see escalators with the name Schindler on them, and we wouldn't think anything of it. Now... Now we have a uh, we have a connection, and usually with a great movie, it's something you can watch over and over again. This is the kind of movie many of us who watched it said, "I don't know if I can ever go through this again." Yeah, I, I agree with that. It's a very good point. I mean, especially when you see like the Ray Fiennes character killing innocent uh, innocent people. It's just it's just it's hard to watch. And when you think, it's, I mean, Spielberg right before this had done Private Ryan with the best yeah. depiction of of D Day. Here he here he says, okay, I'll just do the best depiction of the Holocaust, and I got to throw this in. He did not benefit a penny from this movie. Yeah, I read that. By, I read by, that. by design, he had determined that even before he made the movie. He didn't want blood money, but he wanted to tell the story. And I think maybe one of the greatest cinematic decisions ever made ranks up there with Mel Brooks having the only person who speaks in silent movie being Marcel Marceau was filming the movie in black and white, except yeah. for the girl in the red coat. Because it gives it a timeless quality. Yep, and it was, she was the, she was represented, representation of hope. And so uh, Schindler's List is my number two. I think, I, I don't see how anybody ever tops that as far as movie making. And as far as, we didn't know, nobody knew Oscar Schindler before that. And most people know his name now. So that's my number two. I went with uh, Sidney Lumet's Dog Day Afternoon from 1975, Al Pacino playing the real-life character of Sonny, uh, a guy who makes an ill-advised decision to go into a bank in Brooklyn, New York in the early 1970s to, to rob it. Uh, everything goes wrong. And as you, what's fascinating about this movie and this character is you find out why he's doing it. And then, you, you, you know, as the story unfolds, you realize that Al Pacino's character is a gay man and he needs the money for a sex change operation for his his boyfriend. And I'm assuming in the early 70s, that probably floored people. But the dialogue in this movie, the freewheeling directorial style by Céline Lamette, uh, the banter, between Charles Durning and Al Pacino in this movie is just fascinating. The bank, uh, the, the bank, the characters there in the bank, all well drawn, but Al Pacino has never been better than he was in Dog Day Afternoon. And that's saying a lot, considering coming off the heels of The Godfather 1 and 2. A fascinating movie about a real life person. This is one of my all time favorite movies, Dog Day Afternoon from uh, 75. That's my number two pick, Ken. My number two is from 2012. Some guy named Spielberg directed this one. I don't know what it is today. Uh, movie featured uh, David Strathairn, uh, Hal Holbrook, Tommy Lee Jones, James Spader. A great uh, performance by Sally Field as uh, Mrs. Lincoln. Of course, Daniel Day-Lewis was Lincoln in this movie. And what's great, it was Lincoln. I agree with that. What, what's great about this movie is it was a small slice of Lincoln's life, but it did away with all the bull crap of the of us making him some sort of a character who had no flaws it showed him as a character of his time yes he wanted to free the slaves no he didn't want to give them the vote yes he believed that we should treat them better no he didn't think he they were equal and i think it was great because it really showed 
the machinations that went on. As a historian, it was great to see the some of the myths of the Civil War destroyed and just see how things really were playing out during those times. And just a great performance by Daniel Day-Lewis and... You know, I, I directing. You know, direction wasn't bad either by Spielberg. So I'm going to go with Lincoln from 2012. Great pick. Uh, my number one. I'm going to go with a female lead, and it's uh, it's Julia Roberts as Erin Brockovitz in the movie of the same title. To me, I've always been a big fan of Julia Roberts. Uh, this is the pinnacle of her career. It's a plum role. She won an Oscar for Best Actress. Her banter with Albert Finney. In this movie is fantastic. Uh, you know, uh, Aaron Brockovich, uh, a struggling single mom. Sort of similarities to uh, Pursuit of Happiness here, who becomes a law clerk, uh, and, and basically by her aggressive personality uh, and her tenacity, uncovers a massive scandal from a corporation of toxic dumping uh, that led to a massive lawsuit. I just think it's a fascinating story. I think she was a fascinating person. This is a well-done movie, uh, and it made a lot of money, and uh, it made a lot of money, and that was really good to see. So, Aaron Brockovich, Julia Roberts, is my number one movie based on a real-life person. Great pick. Great pick. I want to uh, throw out an honorable mention. I had it on my list, sure. and then I lost it. And, of course, that's George C. Scott as Patton. I would throw that out as an honorable. That was a great performance and a great movie, and again, a movie they don't make uh, that type of movie anymore. This has been a lot of fun, Kent, to the listening audience on WoWo and our podcast. Thank you very much for listening. See you guys next week. Thanks for listening to Movie Maniacs. Download one of our archived episodes. Be sure to subscribe to us wherever you listen to podcasts. by Federated Media.